and you are listening to the inaugural episode of Hell's Bells. I am your host, Heather Drain, and with me is... Catalinja. I was going <laughs> to cheer then. <laughs> I nearly cheered when you said it was the inaugural episode. Yeah, so uh, I'm the co-host, Catalinja. We're the equal host, but... <laughs> But the, yeah, and we are here to bring you uh, a brand new podcast that is dedicated to the sound, vision, and everything in between of exciting film and musical culture. Was that good? Was that-, <laughs> that was good. Okay. So, for our first episode, we've picked a subject very dear to our hearts because we think it's a a filmmaker who represents a lot of our eclectic tastes and our desire for uh, filmmakers who break boundaries between quote-unquote high and low art and maverick directors. Absolutely. For us, this podcast means a lot to Kat and I. And when we were talking about what we wanted to do for it, Kat suggested our first episode be dedicated uh, and centered around the great late Radley Metzger, who we just lost uh, earlier this year at the end of March. And as if some of you don't know out there, Radley um, was an absolute pioneer in forging art house with erotica in cinema. And his films are unlike any other. So, yeah, we decided rather than do a huge retrospective, we're going to pick a couple of our favourites, but kind of talk about his career as an author and as a filmmaker who worked a lot in Europe as a distributor. Uh, But our main focus will be just on some of the highlights because we could be here, I think, for two days. (laughs) 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 <laughs> we covered them all. But we'll try and bring in as much as we can for, for context. We don't want to f- frighten everyone away <laughs> in the first episode, 24-hour episode. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, that'll come later. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll snort a bunch of trucker speed and watch. <laughs> that'll come when we do Jess Franco. Every... <laughs> oh, Jesus. That will be the one that'll kill us, actually. <laughs> we will go down history as the podcasters who got killed trying to cover every Just Franco film in one in one day. <laughs> in one <fell> <laughs> oh Jesus. Even the Italian Western. But, oh my god. <laughs> but uh but uh yeah, Radley is someone who's so important to both of us. And I don't know, I mean, Kat, what was your first introduction to the the world of Radley Metzger? So my first introduction is my possibly, I don't know, someone asked me earlier, they we were talking about favourites, and I don't know if I've really got, like, a favourite, but if I had to, if I had to say favourite, it would be my first, which was Camille 2000, which is probably one of his most conventional films in the sort of, you know, because it's, it's not, it's one of his hardcore films, it's more one of his erotic films, and it runs more like a melodrama. So, um, yeah, probably that, which was my first, that popped my Metzger cherry, and I was like, uh. <laughs> who is this? This is, and I was really surprised to learn he was American as well, when I'd uh, find out more about it, because it's a very European film. This Armand is what we call an authentic Italian pickup. You are completely crazy. Besides, I need my car. 
Don't worry. They're recalling most of that model anyway. Terrible man. You make a great mistake. I am not Italian. A lot of Radley's films do have that sort of, I mean, he's a great American auteur, but yeah, I mean, he has that European sort of flair and I think also approach to sexuality that most American filmmakers uh, don't have, even when trying to approach like erotica. Very diplomatically um, put, Heather. Thank you. Also, I was I was going to make a joke that he he popped he popped uh, the red <laughs> the Metzger film that popped our maraschino cherries because oh. he did mar or maris I say maraschino. Some people say maraschino. That no, I think doesn't... it's maraschino because there's a line in um, is it naked come the strange came the stranger where she's talking about his maraschino cherries. Uh, yeah, there's no, a reference that's to not that. a metaphor. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's a literal. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a literal it's reference. Maraschino, to I think. But, you know, but, but, yeah. <laughs> so what was your first uh, maraschino cherry of the Metzger? Uh, well, I think I first saw, I first started seeing the name Radley Metzger in my teens. And I can't remember which film book it was now, but there was a film book that was actually kind of, more just mainstream but it did have a section about like a handful of adult films that were critically well regarded by this author who i can't remember now and one of them was amanda by night uh with veronica hart and arbola which is a great sort of murder mystery which also has jamie gillis who we will be talking mm. about a little bit later on this episode uh I, I think insatiable with marilyn chambers but then there was one on opening a misty beethoven and and I just after that I keep seeing I would keep seeing that one pop up is like even from critics who were really not at all into adult or erotica and that was the one they always talked about. And then as I got a little bit older and started reading about sixties like um, sex films, then I'd start seeing things about Carmen Baby and Camille Two Thousand at Licorice Quartet and uh, just was like woo and camille 2000 was actually the first one i ever got to see and i it think was, that uh, one seems to have had like uh i don't know it seems to be that and licorice quartet seem to be the ones uh the more british people seem to have seen i don't know obviously in america there's been more access to his films so. yeah i don't know if the just uh like the distribution you know yeah and i know, I know arrow if... did those two but didn't do any more which was a bit strange like they did a couple of tinto brass ones as well but kind of dropped oh, wow. that line which is a bit sad really because because they're really good restorations i would have liked to have seen more definitely and i oh. i mean obviously with our sex laws over here uh, it's really difficult to distribute anything with porn in because it can only be sold in certain stores so uh, it's like the kiss of death, really. If you if you put out anything with hardcore, because the BBFC, so it it makes it more problematic, I think, to see works that cross straight into hardcore. Yeah. So. Yes. Well, especially with you know, because Radley was one of those who like as explicit and hardcore were, were starting to become well when it became first of all legal to have in feature films uh and not just like in a like oh it's a clinical educational film like what they would call white coders where it's basically excuse to have insertion but you kind of couch it as a educational film so people could get away with it but then like you had a film like bill osco's mona uh which was like which got to play legally and that one broke all the grounds but um Radley kind of for a while skirted kind of both because you have like the image which is one of the ones we're going to go into detail about later in score 
which are two films that are for the most part pretty like soft core but then there's explicit sex yeah. in it um so but radley made that transitional i think a lot smoother than others you know certain soft core filmmakers didn't want to go into hardcore some of them didn't and just refused to like ross like russ meyer um while others tried to but you know never felt comfortable where it seemed like with radley like it's the transition was really smooth and the hardcore work has all of the charm and and taste and interestingness of the softcore. I mean, like he yeah, made that transition yeah, so smoothly. Yeah, I think his hardcore films, which were only a handful, they um, I don't really make any distinction between those and things like Camille Nickerish Quartet. Obviously, his earlier stuff is slightly different, more tame. But those those ones, the ones that come slightly just before the hardcore, I don't really distinguish between those films. Because they're all, no. well, they're just films, aren't they? They're not, uh, like a lot of directors, like, say, John Roland or the European directors or Jess Franco or Jose Larraz would shoot porn to make money. And, and the porn was the porn, although Jean Roland's sometimes got a bit far out. And then their <laughs> films were their films. But I don't think Radley made that distinction, did he, in his work? No, no, he, you know, and I agree, because, you know, to me, I don't even think of, I mean, of his adult work being as a separate, like, category, other than the fact that a lot of the hardcore films he made under the nom de plume of Henry Paris, um, mainly because even though adult was legal to, you know, to distribute and show in America at that point, you could still get arrested for making it. And being attached to it legally, which is strange. Which is but bizarre, isn't it? It's like you can show your film, but we'll arrest you if you make one. It's oh, yeah. really it makes, bizarre. It makes no sense. And I'm sure one could tie that to just, you know, I don't know. Every country has its own fucked up issues <laughs> with sex. <laughs> and America's definitely, uh, you know, we can be kind of high on that list. But, um, but yeah, Radley just, uh, you know, his, you know, the fact that he's able to combine true eroticism and warmth with both softcore and hardcore, which, you know, anybody can show nudity, anybody can show sex, but there's a depth to what Radley would do. And on top of that, there to me was always a layers because everything looks visually great, but there's something underneath. Oh, it. some of the sets were amazing, especially like. Well, we're talking about Camille, but um, Barbara Broadcast, which we'll go into in a minute. I mean, the opening scenes of that are just fucking amazing. There's like mm. in the restaurant and the locations and everything. I mean, it was just, there's just so much. It's not just about the sex. Although one thing that really annoyed me, no disrespect to anyone, but when I saw some of the, uh, what do you call it, like the obituaries or the tributes in the major press after he died, it was almost like, oh, he was an artful erotic filmmaker or he was, it's almost like to talk about him, they have to sort of put him up a notch. And I really hate that attitude that there's, somewhere there's this like line, <laughs> or like either... <laughs> high or low and you know you get these directors that are caught in the middle like alan rob greedy goes into that territory and i think john roland did and you know and barofchek as well i mean you spotted a really uh enraging <laughs> piece oh. didn't you <laughs> comparing the two 
Oh yeah, we'll get we'll get to that when we get <laughs> when we go into details about the image. But, but I yeah. re- I just really don't think you know you I don't think the directors themselves made those divisions. They made films. They were craftsmen. They made really good films. Whether they had sex, sometimes they had sex in them, and sometimes they didn't have sex in them. But they were all really good and really beautiful I- to look at. Absolutely. No, that's, you know, that's something that's always vexed me too, is, is the way that the mainstream press and critics have in the past and still do, honestly, you seem to put everybody, you know, in a box and then kind of in the, like this ghetto. I remember when uh, Gerard Damiano passed and almost every obituary was like pornographer. And you could just almost hear them saying it like that, like pornographer, <laughs> like, like, you know, like he, like he's, you know, like he's shooting a donkey show in someone's basement, you know, it's like, no, this guy made devil and Mrs. Jones, which is an art film to its fucking core. One of core. the first and pornos it, like real that I ever saw as well. That was, which was quite, um, Oh, wow. Eye-opening. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, so we should so do a different episode. Influential. On... <laughs> a list of the first 10 pornography films we ever saw. No, oh, I th- my God. Yeah, it was all a bit hit and miss over here because it was all so illegal and everything. It was all kind of all like right. you'd hear somebody had some porn and so you borrow the tape and you just watch whatever was on it. Um, I remember I... Um, said on one of the Daughters of Darkness episodes when I first, first saw Caligula, my mate brought it around so they got this great porn it's got Romans in it and then we all sat around thinking what the hell is this, it's like Malcolm McDowell and Helen Mirren's in it I'm like this isn't a porn you had to take what you could get back in those days oh my god I, if it, whatever I inevitably do a piece on Caligula because I've always wanted to do like an article on it. I want to put there's Romans in it. That is the best. <laughs> I thought this one is cool. it's a bit weird. <laughs> and I and I never even heard of Tinto Brass then. Like he knew like years later, but yeah, it was all a bit like that. So um, the Devil and Miss Jones was one of the first ones I accidentally got on a black tape. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. And that's such a mood, and it's so moody. I mean, that's the thing. I can't even imagine what that must have it was been crazy. like as your first... Oh, and Pretty Peaches was another one that I saw really old. Go to, oh. Totally off the point, at a party, at somebody's party. And I remember the enema scene. <laughs> oh I, I was only 15 <laughs> and didn't actually know till like, must have been like 15 years later what it was. I just remembered it, yeah. It was just like, yeah, we were very sheltered and, you know, abused by the state, basically. (laughs) Oh, my God. I think Pretty Peaches must have made the rounds in the UK, though, around that time, because when I I did a piece on it a few years back, a a lot of my friends from the UK... Yeah, it's funny. It's one that a lot of my friends actually remember, so I I don't know. It just happened to be on at a party, and I... obviously stuck in my mind and years later I think I was talking to someone I was like do you know what this is but yeah and find out what it was but I oh don't my know. god Al- Alex Dorenzi should not be anybody's first no that film. wasn't like, my that first one wasn't it, was, first it was an one. early <laughs> one <though. laughs> that's pretty early it explains a lot <laughs> I mean, I love Alex Dorenzi, but I think at 15, I would have been like, oh I was my like God. Weed. You know, I didn't know we were going to get the enemas. And the... 
Oh my god, that that film. I love that film, but it is completely <laughs> insane. And the fact that everything is played off as like screwball comedy. It's like, hey, she's at an orgy and her dad's there. <laughs> and you're like, what the fuck? What the I do what? think, though, when we're talking about Radley as well, I don't think he took himself too seriously as well either, did he? And in a lot of these his films, and the ones we'll talk about, maybe not Camille, which is gut-wrenching, but <laughs> some of the later ones, there's so much... You said warmth, like comedy as well. There's just so much fun in them. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the thing I, I've... One of the things I really admire about Radley is that he could kind of do different tones like some of his you know all of his films have like their own sort of tonality and i mean like with camille it is just it's beautiful but it's so heavy even from the beginning that music is so which i know we're about to go into that is so good but there's like a you almost feel this pregnant almost not dread but just like you know it's not going to be the fun ride at the end whereas you know Fast forward a few years later, you have Barbara Broadcast, which to me is like, as a film, it's like a dessert, you know, it's like this beautiful dessert. It's light, it's sweet, it's a little decadent, and you love it. And, you know, but the fact that he could juggle so many different tonalities with his film, you know, make Radley just one of the many things that make him such a great magician as a filmmaker. Like with his early film, I mean, Teresa and Isabel, which he made just before Camille, which was, I think, 68, is more like a melodrama, very sort of tame, but it sets down this tone, this... Uh, some of his core themes, which we'll get to, like sort of female liberation and women discovering their sexuality and falling in love, which is an aspect I love about his work. His films are very much women's films. I mean, take mm. the titles, Teresa and Isabel, Camille, you know, Misty Beethoven. Pamela Mann. Yeah, they're just, they're women's films, aren't they, In in a lot of ways? Absolutely. Radley, to me, is one of the most pro-women filmmakers I think I've ever seen. I mean, he, it's not just that the women, you know, that the camera, his camera loves women, which it does. I mean, every actress, you know, if they've worked with Radley, they've looked their best when they've worked with Radley. Like, the camera, he knew how to light and just do everything where they, but it's not even just about looks. It's about, you can tell that his films, like, the emphasis is always on the women. The women are always kind of uh, for the most part, the strongest presence in his films, I think that's too. What attracted me to his work initially. I do get drawn to European directors like John Ron Allen and Jess Franco, say. Um, and Radley Metzger, I kind of put in that same vein. But another American filmmaker who you just touched on. Russ Meyer. I I do. I mean, not that they made the same kind of films, but I do sense the same spirit between those two and i felt that um maya i think i wrote a big essay for arrow on how a lot of the women in his films are very positive especially for the time where women were very oppressed by their sexuality i mean even in the middle of the 60s there was still this whole you know 
oppression to I mean, even now we still have it but you know mm-hmm. back then and he had tourist satana you know breaking a man's back and vixen and erica gavin and all that was just amazing uh, it's interesting they both started in the military as well filming which is good yeah, yeah i think so i do yeah. see the even though maya never did the porn thing yeah, Meyer. Yeah, Russ. Russ never went into adult. He never wanted to. Um, and Russ actually, yeah. And I'm a huge, huge Russ Meyer fan too. And I, I, I think the thing about Russ is that Russ is tr- like truly a true blue American filmmaker. Like his thumbprint is completely. It's apple pie, big titties, and baseball. Like he. <laughs> I love I that Bradley, about him though, because he's so kind of like down to earth. And Absolutely. yeah, Russ Meyer's really yeah. down to earth. Um, obviously with Radley, he had more experience in European film. And oh yeah, Radley's very, um, Radley's very sophisticated. But I, I love that comparison also though, because both men are very visually dynamic filmmakers, obviously in different ways. But there's an equal amount of care I think applied to how things are lit. Um, you know, how the color composition is. And I mean, that's the thing. Meyer's films are some of the best editing you're ever going to see in and cinema. And the way you frame it, women as well, because it would always be up, looking up at them like they were goddesses. And oh, you see but, yes. it, with Radley Metzger, it's not so much that, but we can talk about it more, I guess, in a, when we talk about Barbara Borkhouse, actually it'd be a good time to talk about, but just the way that he reflected more of a female point of view or a mm-hmm. female a projected a kind of female desire rather than a male desire absolutely well and i think camille 2000 you know when it arrived on the scene i just you know re-watching it earlier this week i was just thinking like man it must have been in some ways almost mind-blowing for people to see when it when it first came out because you have you see like a female orgasm which i mean wasn't new to cinema i mean of course you have hedy lamar in ecstasy which was i think what early 30s yeah that was but 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 it still wasn't very common even in adult films you know modern adult films you don't always see yeah there's moaning and all that but you don't really get the the sense of real female arousal or emphasis on that where with camille you get that equal amount of arousal from both genders, which is so cool. I think as well, if you look back to Therese and Isabel, which was just before, and that's kind of more like a standard erotic film, and it's it was shot in France, uh, where you've got these two girls at a boarding school who kind of fall in love. But the masturbation scenes in that are very underplayed. You know, if it had been 10 years later and another director, she would have been fully naked and, you know, fondling her mm-hmm. breasts on the bed and going, oh, but it's not. <laughs> it's just a fumble under the sheet and there's something feels really honest about it and and genuine, which I think is brilliant. And you see it again in Camille, the character of, of Camille and her sexuality. Um, so it kind of starts here, I think, in these early films. Oh, yes. Well, and and I think another thing that set Metzger apart, too, is that, you know, especially like starting from Camille is, uh, you know, there's a sense of like the sets. I mean, you know, the locations, you know, he has all these great European locations and these amazing houses and like the set designs. I know we definitely wanted to touch the set design in Camille 2000 
it's like this great i mean i don't know would you call it like neo-modern yeah, futuristic like, do you know what it kind of reminds me of and i guess because mexico got to start cutting trailers for um a lot of european films for uh Jan- mm. janus films or janus films which are criterion obviously and so he had a lot of exposure to those um and then when he set up his his own distribution ca- uh company odebon films with ava they would they their first thing they did was distribute foreign films i say foreign films european films like um i am i a woman and uh I, he distributed actually and i mentioned this recently on something else the libertine which was uh Pasquale Festinel's sort of S&M romantic comedy. So I think when you look at Camille and you look at this the sets, they kind of remind me of that that late 60s period, um, or maybe even a little bit earlier, these sort of retro-futuristic films like Elio Petri's The Tenth Victim or Femina Ryden. Mm. Um, you know, these like weird sort of futuristic uh i don't know it's really got that look to it especially yeah. her apartment is almost like the apartment in the feminine riden's apartment and it's like very sparse and minimalistic and just really fucking cool <laughs> i just i killed to live in one of these places oh my god i know and it's and it's such a it's such an interesting approach too because like with their with our character marguerite aka camille um you know, it's you get the sense from the very beginning that she's sort of this doomed character. She's this gorgeous woman living kind of like in this very jet set party life. She's taking pills and, you know, taking, you know, chugging down champagne to wash them. And then you see like her bedroom and everything in her apartment and everything is inflatable furniture. There's artificial lights. Oh, and those mirrors. The mirror. Oh, oh my God. It's the mirrors. <laughs> it's one of the most like exquisitely designed sets I think I've ever seen, especially with the lovemaking scenes where it's like a reflection upon a reflection upon a reflection of like their bodies and just how Radley and his company managed to engineer that without getting the camera in the shots is like to me oh, it, it just it blows it's my beautiful. mind. <laughs> it's, she's played by Danielle uh, Gobert, who I never saw in anything else, but she's so good in this. I think. She, oh, she's she's oh, really got she's... that sort of doomed, washed up kind of. You know, she's living in this hedonistic life. It's uh, based on an eighteen fifty two novel by Alexandra Dumas, which I've not haven't read, but it kind of fits into that uh that 18th century decadent sort of fed up up to the eyeballs with ether and opium and it's doesn't it it's got that kind of you know really decadent kind of theme to it which i guess was good as well for the late 60s don't you ever come down <laughs> not if i can help it <laughs> why <laughs> what do you have in mind You just get this sense of sort of like every you know it's a great time and it seems attractive and you have that amazing absolutely amazing score by uh and please correct me if i'm saying his name wrong piero piccioni which is did i say that right yeah yes he, okay sorry he's <laughs> that score i write to that score all the time i think it's just amazing 
it's just really good mm. it's one of my it's been on my rotation for about i don't know it must be i can't remember when the soundtrack cd came out but now i've got it on streaming so i listen to it now but it's it's a good four or five years it's like one of the ones that i must it must be at least once a week that i write to it it's just so good It's one of my favorites. Like, I think it's one of the best scores I've heard in a long time. It's, and probably my favorite Metzger score. Yeah, by I think far. of all his score because he did get some good people in, and but a lot of the music he used was kind of like library music or just that general music. It's all really good though. It was the music in his films always really prominent and it kind of fits. But Oh, absolutely. You know, for that one to have an actual score, like a like a I guess, you know, like a proper film. You know, it actually had its own <laughs> score, and all the all the tracks are kind of named after the scenes. There's one I think it's called uh, Pearls, which is one of the love mm. one of the love making scenes. I love that track in particular, but it's always it's so good. I think that's why I liked it so much when I first saw it. it was what attracted me so much, apart from the fact that it seemed to have an affinity with a lot of Italians, because so I can't tend to gravitate around that sixty nine seventy one of Italian cinema. So it's it's in that, because it was 1969, so it's in that bracket. But the fact that it had that Piccioni <laughs> score, and he also scored The 10th Victim, which I just mentioned, Elio Petra's 10th oh. Yeah, he actually scored that, uh, which is, you know, got a similar weird decor. So, um, yeah, I think, it, I think that's why it stands out so much. It's kind of like he's replicating... He's got an international cast and crew and he's kind of replicating the films. I guess he was looking for distrib- uh, distribution. Um, it came out the same year as Femina Readings as well. So it was right within that time, which must have been amazing to be there. Oh, I can I can only imagine. I can't. I, I wish like I like to think that in the afterlife, you know, if there is one that we get to tra- like travel through time <laughs> oh. and experience all the great things we didn't get to <laughs> because of either circumstances or timing and seeing any of any of Metzger's films when they first hit the screens. Oh, my God. Especially one of my favorite scenes in the film. And it's it's the one where um so for any of you listening who haven't seen this, the character Marguerite, you know, she's our doomed heroine and, you know, she's basically pursued by Armand Duval, played by Nino Castelnuovo, um, who's, you know, very handsome He's and fun. He's sweet as well. He's, He's lovely, so sweet. isn't he? He's so sweet. And, but he doesn't have a lot of financial prospects, but... He does she bring keeps her a little of- box of sweets, though, to kind of chat her up, doesn't he? I thought that was so. I, I thought that was touching. He I looks mean, like a little lost puppy at the for the first sort of kind of half an hour. <laughs> yeah. And he's not. And he's not too pushy. Like he's very likable. He's not. I mean, I hate it when you watch films that are trying to be romantic, and the man is so pushy and to the point where he's like stalking. It's like this is stalking. This is not romantic. <laughs> she needs to call the police. Like you know, I'm not saying any examples. John Cusack is saying anything, but. <laughs> That's stalking. He Armand is a gentleman. He does not stalk. No, he, <laughs> he does kind of manipulate <laughs> situations to be with her, though, doesn't he? He just oh, kind he does, of he's crafty. Yeah. 
he is crafty but, but he's a but, sweet crafty and she's kind of like hard and cynical yeah <laughs> which i like oh definitely well and that's the thing is these you know these two actors are so great in their roles because it's danielle and i wish she would have done more stuff too because she's, she's so brilliant. good in she is really it, good i think and the chemistry with her as well and the chemistry between mm. those two, sorry, they've got a really good chemistry, which you often don't find in a lot of these quote-unquote erotic films, that there's no chemistry, it's, you know. But with those two, they do. there is does seem to be like kind of a genuine chemistry, I think, which is why it works so well. Oh, absolutely. Well, and, you know, and there's a scene where finally she's kind of starting to kind of be more vulnerable with him. And, you know, and they're on this, there's this amazing, like, vista behind them of this old church. And they embrace, and you're like, oh, this is so sweet. Until you realize in the background, it's a funeral. And you're like, oh, shit. Like, this is not, <laughs> this is not going to end well. Which this is, <laughs> I know. There's so many of these little touches in that film and symbolism and stuff. I think the more you watch it, the more you see it. But it has mm -hmm. got, I mean, even the love scenes have got, uh, they're beautiful. It's like the one with the mirror that you said. Uh, and they're in this bed, this white room with this white bed, this white inflatable bed of all these mirrors and stuff. But even the kind of lovemaking scenes have got this air of cynicism or something, you know, like this, I don't know, you just know, don't you? <laughs> That's probably why I like yes. it so much because I'm a depressing <laughs> bastard. <laughs> I, I've, I've often joked that my favorite erotica films are the ones that not making it sound very erotic <laughs> yeah Radley's actually one of the few that his work is genuinely I would say erotic most of my favorite erotic filmmakers works are so unsexy though they're just everybody's like this is think, depressing and weird that it's intensely erotic <laughs> because of that because well he yeah yeah I would agree with that because of he the chemistry and because of this kind of edge to it absolutely well i think the way that radley that he would also the way he would frame and set up his love scenes too where there's a lot of details even with the the, the hardcore era you know you there's almost more shots on someone's face or what their hand is doing like than as much you know than say you know an insertion shot like there's it's just all this like attention to detail where you know you just hear somebody's breathing there's that great scene where she's building up to her climax and the camera's going in and out of focus in sync with her breathing oh, it's and so it's good. like it's it's so good and just you know and it just everything just feels so beautiful but genuine and i think that's a really hard mix because like my problem with other erotic films like say um even like something like emmanuel is that it looks beautiful you know, it's photographed beautifully, and of course, I mean, Sylvia Christel's gorgeous, and I love her, but I, to me, it always felt a little hollow, and maybe that's because, like, after, like, watching somebody like Radley. Yeah, I definitely think as well, and like I said this earlier, he doesn't overplay it, uh, like, back to Teresa and Isabel quickly, like, the, the way he handled the erotic scenes in that, because obviously it was still a bit taboo, that's, like, slightly earlier on. Was when he has the two girls together because it was based on a novel and he does a lot of these adaptations early on of novels and even with Into Misty Beethoven, which was Pygmalion. So he did a lot of these mm. adaptations, made them a bit naughty. But the way he dealt with it there was he'd have the two <laughs> girls together and there'd be a little bit of nudity, but then they'd read 
the sexy passages of the book over it, which is I think is really beautiful actually, and a lot sexier than having, you know, two people just heavy breathing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because it's just the way... And he kind of does that with this as well, <clears throat> I think. Oh. Well, it's, I, you know, it, and especially when you, I think, set it up next to other sexploitation. Of course, this isn't sexploitation, but other films that definitely had a lot of sexuality of that time were... You know, I, a woman's a great exception, but uh, but most of them, especially American equivalents, you, you know, there's a little bit, at this point, probably boobs, no lower nudity. Uh, guys in those awful black socks that are oh up to the God. knees with the little Fred Garvin male prostitute garters, boxers, and a lot of kind of weird rutting, like a lot of rutting around. And then just like the girls like, oh, oh, you know. And I mean, I love some of those films too, I won't lie. But I mean, but they're not, yeah, it's not erotic. Where Radley, he just like a like the, the master artist that he was, like he kind of knew how to play it in a way that was it's lovely and not cheap or easy and it's just but it feels genuine but yet it's very classy you know it's it's that's a hard hard balance to i think to have for a filmmaker and he pulls it off and on top of that camille 2000 really does it doesn't just work as eroticism i mean by the end of it which perhaps we shouldn't spoil it though it is doomy so you guys can probably very do it's very sad at the end oh my god i won't spoil it, it but it's very sad, but kind of uh, my favourite uh, scene, and it's slightly before the end, there's a kind of orgy scene in it, uh, mm-hmm. an S&M orgy scene, which S&M um, would carry on throughout to crop up in his later works, perhaps not to the extent of Rob Greeley, uh, but then he did adapt Catherine Rob Greeley's text. But this amazing party scene where this couple are watching each other with a different partner Mm. Uh, and you've got women on chains and these really amazing costumes they're wearing and there's like a fucking dungeon in the middle of this lounge room. (laughs) It's just so good. (laughs) And a lot of it plays out through eye contact rather than, I mean, even though there's sex in the scene, the the tension and the eroticism plays out through the eye contact, which is something you don't see very often. Normally when they do Uh. the eyes or the face, it's all too much, isn't it? The face is rising and you're like, calm the fuck down. (laughs) It's touching your hair. (laughs) It's such a thin line between sexy and scary. (laughs) Jealous? Of her? If she freaks out over my leftovers, she's welcome to them. There are tears in your eyes. It's the smoke. I'm, no, I'm so glad you brought up that sequence and that's um, especially well for multiple reasons that's because um, it's basically this girl this beautiful blonde Olympi which I think is how you say her name who's played by Silvana Venturelli yeah, yeah. Silvana Venturelli who turns who's going to pop up yeah and the licorice quartet he was really there's something about that woman she's just really her presence is like she's really intense isn't she 
Oh God! Yeah, she's in a good way, I mean, especially not in a writhing in a very... <laughs> not in the, the like, context of what I was just yeah. saying. <laughs> yeah, she's not. That's not a scary way where she's like, I think she's going to kill somebody. But <laughs> yeah. no, she's just. I don't know. Something about her. The camera just loves her. Oh God, so so crazy, photogenic, and just very compelling and and that's i think that's think radley i've always said that the greatest filmmakers always knew how to pick or know how to pick people that have a presence it's not it's not anybody there are plenty of people who are pretty but you can put them on film and they're flat like they don't have a presence you, you have to find that combination of people who are interesting to look at that doesn't always mean somebody's classically beautiful either just somebody who's interesting and has a presence and you know i think radley you know, 99% of the time nailed that. And the whole S&M setup with that party is so, it's so great. And so it, it's such a fabulous, like, combination of something that's viewed as kind of taboo. But the thing is, in that scene people... well, you've got the competition between, because normally the all eyes will be on one woman. He was actually very good mm -hmm. at ensemble scenes. And, you know, in a lot of things, you'll get the, the star or the lead, which obviously is uh, Danielle Gobert in this, is Marguerite. But in mm. that scene, there's the two of them. So she's head to head with Silvana. And it's difficult to tell actually who's got the strongest presence in that because um, the way he captures both of them, it's just it's just really good. And oh, normally yes. you get the slightly lesser one, don't you? <laughs> um, but, but with those two, uh, you know, there's no competition really. That he gives equal attention, but it's it's so good that film. I think that was what really cemented it for me. My love for it was that that scene. Oh, God, yes. Well, and one detail that was so just so brilliant to me was the fact that Marguerite is a character. She's constantly surrounded by artificial like furniture, and even I I heard of. Um, interview with radley earlier today where he was talking about they purposely let his costume and art designer for that film enrico sabatini did that on purpose to almost kind of emphasize this sort of like this woman being surrounded by things that are cold and not from nature which is and so that good aren't, that aren't a lot yeah yeah it does really um, work she lives in this beautiful villa as well it's amazing mm -hmm. But they show the exterior of it, and then when they go inside, or you don't see them go inside because he do, he cuts from outside to inside. The contrast between those, because he did used to love the European locations as well, makes really good use of them. So I think the 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 beginning of the story is Armand is new to Rome, so he's getting shown round by his friend. And so you get to see some of the city as well, which is really cool. So it's got that kind of contrast of the city life and the countryside and this beautiful villa, but then anything in her world is like this weird little capsule that could be in the future. It kind of just exists mm. in a in its own little bubble. It's strange, but really good. Oh, it's so good. Um, also, I have to bring up... <laughs> I don't I want to know your feelings on this because <laughs> that first <laughs> that first I guess it's kind of an orgy scene like it's like the first party like at her place that Armand shows up to and you know people are kind oh, of is that the one where there's some guys sat around dressed like a Roman is that yes. like yeah, yeah like you do uh, it has Roman <laughs> <laughs> It has Romans in it, but um, but 
about that what cracked me up about this scene is like at one point there's a shot and everybody's just sort of like lazing around and i, I actually had it in my notes like is this like the most quaaluded out orgy <laughs> ever it's like yeah they're not no one actually two gets kind of kissing they? <laughs> it's like yeah at what point <laughs> like uh uh philippe forquet who was basically this um like wants to possess marguerite well yeah, she pays her money oh they got because she's got all these like horrible men around her but well that's how she makes a living is it she's not really a prostitute but she's a kept woman so yes. which is why she's so cynical because all these men want to possess her so she allows them to buy her things but She's never been in love, and that's the whole thing, you know. So, you know, it's kind of predictable. She's like, well, these guys buy me and you shouldn't fall in love because, you know, I've got no heart. And you kind of know where it's going to go. But it's still... I think you invest in the characters enough that you still care, even though you kind of yeah, know it's, where it's going. Yeah, it's it's pulled off in a way where, it, yeah, it doesn't feel like a soap opera. It doesn't feel cheesy or even, even though you expect it, it doesn't feel expected. Um, and with, uh, you know, with Philippe Fourquet's character, what cracked up at that orgy scene is like he shows up try, knocking, you know, trying to keep tabs on her. And like there's this couple on the couch and they're just like, you know, oh, someone's knocking. <laughs> and they're just like, nobody's getting up. They're just <laughs> I'm like I don't. I'm like that is some strong weed. I don't. <laughs> I kind of like though how some very pure weed. How Armand sort of like he obviously he's never been in Rome or to an orgy, uh, so his reaction is because she sort of storms out. She's got a headache. He's like I'll tell everyone to go home. You know you should rest. He sort of really doesn't clearly know the etiquette there. He's he takes on this kind of care role, which is kind of sweet, but probably and she's there in the corner snorting a line <laughs> and you know she's just gonna eat you up mate and spit you out <laughs> it's like what are you doing it kind of reminds me but not but it sort of reminds me have you ever seen that more by barbe schroeder um, I only oh, watched it recently, and it's got Mimsy Farmer in it. It's not. It's not. It's not really a love story in the way um, Camille is, but it's kind of the same thing. This guy, he meets this girl at a party, and his friend says, "Stay away. You know, go. Don't go near." It's Mimsy Farmer, and she's into drugs, and um, you know, it's kind of a similar thing. And you just know he's going to be fucked. But it kind of reminds me of that. But it's better because Mimsy Farmer is like the most with all respect to her, uh, she's just not a very convincing hippie she's kind of annoying in that um it doesn't really because she's kind of cold she would have been a good camille she's kind of a cold actress i think uh and definitely in a yeah. euro work with like perfume the lady in black and four flies and stuff like that for argento she's an autopsy she's good at cold characters but not as this free loving hippie it just really doesn't it just comes off it kind of reminds me of that you know like stay away from that girl and you know she's kind of mysterious mm. and very independent and seems to have a lot of money and a lot of these rich guys that look after her so you know i thought yeah i'd, I'd not watched i only watched it very very recently kind of by accident so uh yeah weird Man, tangent there <laughs> 
I'll have to check that out. That's yeah. See, well, you can get through like, it without wanting to slap Mimsy Farmer. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I like Mimsy Farmer, but yeah, I cannot imagine her as a hippie. Yeah, that is no, a it doesn't. Strange. Yeah, but she would have been a good commander, I think. <laughs> Oh, definitely. Um, the kind of the other cool thing, in a, in a way that maybe sort of differs, is that Camille's friends and her inner circle, her inner circle, are not really presented as being vultures or terrible people at all. Like even like um, like Godi, who's this like obvious like fabulous, uh, just fun character. Who's he's, it's never like well, yeah, it is actually said because at one point she calls him. Uh, can we say can we say faggot is that are people gonna be offended that's what she no, says in the movie well, not, we don't like, care about being offensive <laughs> okay Pe- people people are so politically correct i'm just like we could you know people calm down okay we're not <laughs> we're not we're not being hateful we're just quoting a movie but no i mean but Cody's obviously like this gay character but he really at one point he's like he checks in on her at a party later on he's like basically saying are you okay and I kind of love the fact that, like, yeah, her friends aren't, you know, they're not terrible people. They're just kind of in the same sort of just, you know, they're kind of just candles, like drift, you know, yeah, candles burning at around, smoking all that great weed, aren't they? Not having that jobs. weed is amazing. <laughs> Lord, that that is some good weed. I'm like... <laughs> the best. I mean, it's not a good orgy ever that it's... never was because no one could sit yeah. up. <laughs> nobody could get off the couch they're like man i would love to have sex with you but i'm really stoned you do get that though like you got in Fulci's lizard of the woman's skin you got those two hippies in that haven't you just sit on the balcony watching a woman get murdered and they're kind of like hee we're stoned <laughs> <laughs> so what was the <laughs> the european weed in the early yeah. 70s and late or maybe 60s that's just what they the- thought it should be like <laughs> <laughs> you never know because i always wonder you know i don't think people actually lived in apartments like those european film apartments like the, the oh, yeah God, no. i don't think I they love. actually existed so maybe that weed never did <laughs> <laughs> we we need to live in that magical universe where we have these fabulous European apartments and that great European weed. We, yeah. we need that. <laughs> and a little car, one of those cool little cars they've always got as well that they all just seem to pass around. Don't they? Oh, those little cars, <laughs> those little cars are so great. I wish that that needs to. I'm so tired of almost getting hit by people in huge SUVs and trucks, which is in part of the south midwest region of america that is like there's so many people driving around these giant vehicles it's like you don't need this to go to starbucks you don't need a giant vehicle <laughs> to go to the store people you're not hauling bales of hay what are you doing i, I drive a peugeot 205 and it's a 1990 reg and it's tiny and i live on the on it in a village and everyone drives those fucking four by four range rovers oh, Jesus. like we have roads. You don't need a four by four. <laughs> it's in vogue. Thank you. It's yes. in vogue. No, they have. They've got this cool little cars. I love the city shots in Camille as well, where they're kind of sort of racing oh. around the city and they're all crammed into these little cars. And, you know, it's it's kind of cool. It looks like a wreck is about to happen every single second because <laughs> nobody's really in a line. It's just sort of this beautiful, sophisticated chaos of auto- of tiny automobiles that. <laughs> this <laughs> where somehow... my car belongs in its heart. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I'm destined to go back there because it would fit in. Otherwise, I'm driving around thinking I'm going to get crushed to death. <laughs> Someone's going oh to bang into me in their huge car. <laughs> So, you know, my car lives in spirit of the era. So, you know. I've, <laughs> I've, I've only ever, for the most part, driven compacts because I like a good, you know, I don't need, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not into masonry. I don't need a huge vehicle, you know, <laughs> I just need something to get me from point A to point B safely and efficient on gas. That's all I, people are crazy, but um speaking of interesting crazy things how's that for a segue um i i wrote, i was reading up on piero piccioni and he uh in addition to, he's done over 300 soundtracks yeah. or around 300 he's soundtracks so which is insane uh, and so good and um apparently a little bit of lurid trivia was was named as a suspect at one point in this infamous murder case really uh, i didn't know that this, in Italy, of this, uh, the victim's name was uh, Wilma Montesi, oh. uh, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, but um, just bear with me, folks. And uh, this whole case, now he never got charged, and to this day, it's unsolved. Really, and that is really interesting. So the whole time, and- though, to get out and murder anyone doing 300 odd score. I, I know he worked on so much. He must think he must have been constantly working. Oh, I know. Yeah, that's... <laughs> and his scores are so good be... as well. The the small amount that I've heard are just all really good. So, you know, he was oh, just... Oh, he's so... God, no, he's great. And um, But apparently the case uh, was... Uh, and the circumstances surrounding it such were uh, part of the inspiration for La Dolce Vita by Fellini. So... Um, according, at least according to what I've researched on the internet, which you know the internet would never lie to us. No, <laughs> <laughs> everything we read online is true. We're so especially, if we, <laughs> especially if it's on Wikipedia. I don't know. It's a bit of gossip, IMDb. though, isn't it? It's a bit of gossip. <laughs> well, Whether it's, it's true or not, it's it's juicy. especially because he's um, like a lot of the great Italian composers uh, of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, a lot of them seem to be very influenced by jazz. And, you know, you just think of these seedy jazz nightclubs and there's like sex and heroin and murder. And it's just like so, <laughs> it's just so exciting. You know that's a I mean, book it's, you've got to write heaven now. <laughs> <laughs> if you I'll don't call, write that it. book, you know, I'm going to be really sad. <laughs> We will write it together. It'll be our fiction collaboration. That'll if people will be like, there's nothing but sex and drugs and murder on every fucking page. We'll be like, yes, you're welcome. And it stars Klaus Kinski, so there. It would have to. So, oh my god, I kidding. Yeah, talking of weird, we should probably go to the licorice cult quartet now, which gets oh. even weird, which is so fucking beautiful. And what's the second Metzger film I saw actually I kind of saw them quite close together Um, me too slightly abstract compared to Camille which is like I said very conventional in terms of storyline 
equally beautiful, if not more, I think, just because of the crazy oh. fucking sets in this. And what I love about this is it kind of... So the basic plot is... You've got this weird family, sort of husband and wife, and this creepy son who like to watch porn together. And they're all enjoying <laughs> this girl. And um, it's classy. You make it sound so seedy. It's classy. <laughs> it's a classy film. It's Radley Metzger. So they kind of go to this, like, fairground, and they meet this girl who they're convinced is the girl from the porn. So they take her back to this magnificent castle that they've got because they just... Happen to live in a fucking castle because they're just so <laughs> rich. <laughs> and and then it's kind of like um, Pasolini's Tio Rima, but just with a porn girl. Oh. In the in Tio Rima, this mysterious stranger turns up at this house and he with a troubled family and he kind of sleeps with them all and their lives are changed. So it, she kind of does that with them but what i love about it is uh, and she spends time with each family member and they t talk about their sexual fantasy and as she interacts with the people the film changes so it kind of and the fact it's set in this castle as well it kind of exists in this fantastic world that's almost supernatural it's kind of like a fantastique cinema even though it's not yeah. obvious, you know? Do you know what I mean? It's just got this weird vibe that it's not actually... You, it can't be real in the fact that the bloody film changes with every interaction. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I... Oh. Now, this is the one... Uh, it may be my favourite. It may be my number one, because I... This is the one that has my heart. I, um, I think it's definitely Radley's most arty film especially because you know things like reality and truth and memory are constantly being kind of played with not only for the characters but for the the viewer um for us the viewers for ourselves and um and it's and that to me that's always a very ballsy move as an artist because when you take that kind of leap you put yourself at risk both for kind of upsetting people who kind of you know most people even if they want to admit it or not they want a, a story that they can understand and Bradley doesn't make it easy here but no, I but it's I definitely his most non-linear narrative I think because with the porn ones later on he kind of does these vignettes that aren't connected by narrative but this is something else this is like something yes. completely surreal so he is kind of doing that in that he's got interconnected sex scenes but the fact that he adds mm. this almost supernatural element to it that people just accept as real, it kind of makes it like a weird fairy tale, like an erotic fairy tale, um, yeah, which I, I love so... that aspect of it. Oh, God. It's it's brilliant. And the editing, because there's constant use of like flash images. Some images are repeated. Some become kind of almost transmutated. And they build up. But as it starts to get like come together throughout the film, like you start building up kind of an understanding of the of the characters, and I absolutely, for me, two of the factors that nailed me were like the fact that he cast um, as the parents 
you know, you have uh, Erica Rimberg, who's like a, a noted uh, European actress. I believe she's German. Uh, you did have a lot Austrian. of cross pollination at that time, didn't you? Though, because it was actually filmed oh. uh, um, in Italy. Uh, um, and she mm-hmm. said it's 1970, so it's a year later than Camille. Uh, uh, Bossarano Castle in Italy, which is also where they shot. They say she shot some of my favourite films in there. The the bloody pit of horror was shot there. Oh, good old Crimson oh. Executioner, Alice <laughs> Whipping was... there. Um, they they <laughs> filmed that really fucking weird but amazing adaptation adaptation of Carmina, Crypt of Horror, which has Christopher Lee in it. It's like Count Karnstein, but he's not a vampire. Um, that was shot there. The Devil's Wedding Night was shot there. And... Uh, oh Renato Polselli's The Reincarnation of Isabel, which I fucking love, uh, was also shot there. And you can tell there's a scene when they go out to the top of the roof of the castle and you see these mountains behind. It just really takes your breath away. And those that, see, that um, part of the castle is used in The Reincarnation of Isabel as well. I mean, you could have made the most shitty low-budget horror there and it would just look <laughs> fucking amazing. <laughs> So the castle. One day we're going to go to that castle because it's a real thing. We're talking about the imaginary apartment of Camille, but we can actually go to that castle. So when we do our Kickstarter um, for you lovely <laughs> listeners to help Kat and myself, this is our destiny. We are meant to go to this castle. Um, that's amazing, though. I had a, you know, it's funny because I remember when I first watched Licorice Quartet. Um, a few years ago, uh, when Cult Epics released it over here in the States, I kept thinking this castle looks so familiar. Yeah, because there are parts of it. I'm, and- yeah, I'm obsessed with the reincarnation of Isabel. And um, I remember when it's just that, that bit that's on, it's kind of like a, a rooftop or a, I'm not even sure what you call it, like a terrace, I guess, with these mountains. And I remember when I saw um, Isabel. It was like, that is, I know that castle, you know, because it's so striking. Yeah. So, yeah, I did go on a mission to find out, but um, I didn't recognize it from the other films. It's just because those two use that same shot. But pretty cool, though, to have access to filming somewhere like that. That must have been quite fun. Oh, my God. Well, and I mean, there's even like at one point the characters when the care, you know, and I love the fact that like in the film, nobody really has a name. It's like if, you know, it's just like there's the parents, which is Frank Wolf and Erica Renberg. And then you have the son uh, who is the stepson. The creepy. The yeah, the creepy. So, isn't he? He's a bit he creepy. Sits around. <laughs> so it's his actual <laughs> mum and they sit around watching porn films. It's all, it's so it's all very yeah, gothic Apollo... aristocracy, isn't it? <laughs> Deca- the decadence, yes, the very the decadence of uh, of old old and new money, but um, especially because we're never it's never explained how they are are rich because we keep having flashbacks where the stepfather was an American soldier during World War II, and I don't want to spoil too much because yeah, this no. film has so many like cool reveals and surprises and can we talk about the library though where can we talk about the library with us 
That is one of my favorite love scenes. Probably because we're writers, too. It's This is like sort of like the most perfect thing. If you're writers and you love word, this is your love scene. This is your dream sex scene right here. Apart from she's fucking the dad in it, and he's not really all that, is he? But then the son's a bit creepy as well, but the floor i kind of love the dad you like the I dad love frank wolf you do no well, he's very intense he's i'm i have you know i'm i don't know i have <laughs> i have some strange days <laughs> sometimes but i love i love frank's wolf frank wolf's performance so much in this film because to me there's something in his eyes there's he pulls off just sort of this man who's trying to reclaim his masculinity because him and his wife obviously have a very um unbalanced relationship where she's all you know she kind of makes a lot of references to him being impotent and not being virile and you know but there's something i don't know frank wolf has a great presence in this film and i was really sad to learn uh he killed himself i think a year later oh seriously i feel bad now yeah take that back no he is kind of a well, like his character in that kind of plies into this whole Italian thing of the Italian inept and you had a lot of these women characters coming around at that time who were like these ball breaking because the wife kind of is like that isn't she she's like a bit of a you know she's not very nice to him at all so when he gets to sleep with this beautiful young blonde uh, in this library where the whole floor is covered in, in dictionary definitions oh so cool she says I'm impotent. I know I'm not. But when she says it, I start to believe. It must be true. I don't think you're impotent. I have a heart condition. It isn't serious. Overdue, you know. I drive myself too hard, I mean. Who needs it? One of my favorite sets ever. And I love the fact that like the all of the words are very saucy. I'm like, this is which which kind of lends to the fact of like what is real and you know what is real and what is fantasy in this film, because the you know, in the middle of this very old castle which has decorations that for the most part look fitting of such a structure you have this very modern looking library with this floor that has definitions for phallus and orgasm and fuck it's amazing (laughs) it's like whoever thought that it's just the actual the sign stages were filmed in chinachita in rome but the attention to detail on those sets their kind of lounge is mm. really bizarre as well because it's like this old-fashioned castle but with like quite modern furniture and stuff where they sit around with their oh. projector watching <laughs> watching oh. naughty films. <laughs> you wonder where they get them from as watching well, living s- in that castle. If they send down to the village, <laughs> send one of their s- <laughs> butlers down, I say... <laughs> See, I, kind of, I think they're kind of... I think the characters are credited as something like the castle owner. 
isn't it the sun yeah (laughs) it's something like and i think the girl's the the visitor or something like that and yeah i love that room too because inexplicably there's this table that has all of these like sort of like crystal like crystal spheres and obelisks and it looks almost like something you'd see in an occult shop. Oh, like, well, there's that mirror shot in there, isn't it? There's that beautiful oh. mirror shot because, as we said before, the the main girl in it. So this girl that they come and take from the fair is uh, Silvana Venturelli. He has the one big scene in uh, Camille. He plays the visitor. You you kind of, which is why I think it it might be some riff on that and the Tirima thing. Uh, which Takashi Miike's visit a queue is also a riff on that. <laughs> I'm totally unconnected, but you know. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's a scene in that when she's looking into this mirror, and there's all these like little balls, little bubbles with all like little reflections. Oh, so good. Oh, it's it's beautiful. And again, like that's one of the things I love about. Uh, Metzger is so many of his films have shots where there's images upon images like he works a lot with mirrors and reflections and and, in ways that are very you know that are unique to each film and that mirror you know here in Licorice Quartet is definitely a great example of that Um, it's just this beautiful it's beautiful stuff and like with the one thing I noticed with the music like I love how like the very beginning you almost have like these medieval type bells, but then it goes into something very modern, and, and some of the music almost sounds like Burt Bacharach. Is it a Mustafio Cipriani, isn't it? Who did that one? It, it is. is. It is Stelvio, who, who I love. Um, oh, he's he was one another of the best. really, really prolific Italian composer. He kind of, um, he kind of sort of did more. I'm trying to think of a diplomatic word, but more Euro trash, I guess, or Euro horror, or just euro cine well, yeah. but he did um he did this he did the soundtrack for rings of darkness which is a horribly weird pedophilic film um, but, <laughs> but, but the, um, oh my god <laughs> no seriously it is um but the actual soundtrack to it is amazing it was uh stalvio did that oh god and he did the talking of uh um, Feminine Readings, he did the soundtrack for that. There's bits of Licorice ca- uh, Quartet that actually sound a bit like that. Because so, he was kind of, you can tell him he had a very unique style. He used these like, weird mm-hmm. keyboards and stuff. And uh, so he did the Feminine Readings. Well, oh, what else did he do? Which was the year before. Oh, God, he did um, he did some Jallos. He did that those Susan Scott, uh, Death Walks on High Heels. I think he did. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think what else he did. He did uh, Tragic Ceremony, the Freda film. Um, oh, God. <laughs> Sorry. He did. He did. No, oh, no, no he no, worked no. with Barva was... a bit, actually. He did um, yes. sound awful now. Sound like this. Uh, yeah, no, he did, um, he did like Rabid Dogs, and I think he did Barren Blood as well. He did, he did, he bear... did loads he did... of films. Oh, yes. He also did Bay of Blood and uh, Umberto Lenzi's Nightmare City. Oh, God, yes, he did, didn't he? What did he do? Oh, mm-hmm. he did one of those... Um, it wasn't one of the shark films. It was one of the tentacle. It was oh, the octopus. Uh, was it... it w- I'm trying to think what this is all for. Oh, God, you're right. No, no, I know. Oh. This is... Um, but, you know, this is... I, you know, I think... 
the fact that we even know who Silvio. Te- no, it's called Tentacles. It's called Tentacles. Tentacles. Is that, <laughs> I is think that the... it's called Tentacle. No, because I know it is called Tentacles. Yeah, because I have the soundtrack on a little rotation thing, and it's like the it's the Italian for for Tentacles, mm. which I'm not going to attempt to say from memory. <laughs> <laughs> um. I, I looked up a little bit on Stelvio, and apparently he stu- he gets a study in the U.S. with um, Dave Brubeck, which Dave Brubeck's like one of the big cats of uh, jazz, American jazz in the 50s and 60s. Brubeck's amazing. So, you know, and you can kind of hear a little bit of jazz, I think, with Stelvio's, with some of his work, but kind of in his own filter and process, which is so cool. Yeah, no, he is um, quite jazzy. Dra- he can get quite jazzy. And I think he... Uh... Yeah, because he, he does have a, like a bit of a goblin kind of keyboard thing going on as well, but it's always more jazzy. He's not really the prog rock type. He's got more of a... I'm all for explaining music, by the way, and considering we'll be doing episodes on music. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're doing, I think you're doing wonderful. No, I think that's actually a good point, because is, it is kind of interesting to look at him as a precursor sonically to Goblin. And I think that, I think you pointing out the fact that, yes, Silvio has more of a jazz, um, sort of more of a swinging, almost, for lack of a better term, swanky kind of feel to his stuff, as opposed to Goblin, which is definitely like prog rock. No, that's a beautiful comparison. I, I agree completely. I do, I do like the Stelvio. So, I don't know. We shouldn't really say much more on Nick. I don't want to give away. There's a brilliant lesbian scene at the end, though. It's, like, really... Oh, there's a great... Uh, oh. Maybe we'll do, like... Someday, like, it'd be fun to do an episode just breaking down this film, complete with spoilers. This is a hard film to talk about without, without going without giving it away. We don't really want to give it away, but there is... So, basically, she has these sort of weird encounters with each member, and the one with the mother, because the mother's kind of frigid is this kind of uh, lesbian unraveling uh, with, again, like an S&M twist to it, which t- tends to come up in a lot of his films, I think. Not in mm-hmm. a, well, in the image, obviously. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, like, just tiny little bit. There's always these tiny little bits in there. You know, like in, um, oh, God, what's the one about the brothel? Oh, um, Arashino Chair. Yeah, uh, where they got the woman, she, like, when the when the people's time's up, they oh, whip CJ her. Oh, CJ Lang. They yeah. whip her in the corner and she has to scream. <laughs> Tell them their hours up. You know, just these, like, little oh, things. My... But that scene where a woman is kind of, she's forced to watch a film by the young woman, uh, it kind of reminds me of, and I was, again, apologies if people listen to multiple recordings of me because I was talking about this again recently was uh, Henri George Clouseau's Women in Chains or La Prisonnaire, which is all about a woman who gets in a sadomasochistic relationship and then she's kind of what forced to watch these porn films by a would-be lover, which she kind of... So it's got that thing to it, a bit of blower, but, you know, this thing, this sort of uneasiness. There's like a cruelty as well that I like that finds it feels kind of... I don't know, really genuine. Yeah. Well, and um, kind of the cool thing about the way S&M is used in, uh, here in the Licorice Quartet is that it's almost more for tenderness. And I think Erica Redberg, I, just, I mean, she's great. And the thing I loved is like, yeah, her character for the most part is almost like kind of austere and sort of frigid for a good chunk of the film. But you kind of see her start to break down a little bit. And she's really good at not making this character 
like a stereotype. Like she gives her a heart and, you know, again, we can't spoil anything, but kind of the reveals that are used with the footage and which turns into flashback is really, really good. And, uh, it's it's just it's such a rewarding film like i think this is a film you could watch three or four times and you'll find something maybe a little bit new in it especially how everything is sequenced together i love how that it's you again you've got this kind of liberation theme in this that you saw in Teresa and isabel and then it comes up here and this and then that kind of continues then on through his work you've got a lot of these stories of of female sexual or like journeys into discovery of female sexuality because without trying to go too much into it this older woman you kind of get the idea that she hasn't really had a satisfying sex life which is probably why she's a bit peeved at her husband so uh she finds that <laughs> connection or what? that liberation sort of later on so it's kind of sweet and it's kind of you know it's it's uh, what's the word for it? <laughs> it's um, I was going to say it's heartwarming, but that sounds completely wrong. But it kind of is. It's kind of like life affirming, and you do see that message, especially being an American film. This is what interests me: is being an American filmmaker. No disrespect to you as an American, but this kind of puritanism that you see in American culture. <laughs> I mean, I know it's British aren't really considered, no, you know, hey, you know, but we kind of don't have that religious aspect and we haven't for a long time in our culture. So it's quite daring to see an American filmmaker do that. The fact, and, and the women in Russ Meyer's films kind of find their strength through their sexuality. So it's not so much, I read them, it's not so, Absolutely. I mean, Russ Meyer would have laughed to think he was a feminist filmmaker. And, you know, but they, the fact that they accidentally, <laughs> through their respect for women, I think, or their worship of women, find this way to celebrate female sexuality. It's kind of quite daring to do that in a, in a kind of, puritan environment you don't see it a lot from those american filmmakers or when you do it's kind of forced do you know what i mean yeah well i mean to be honest you know when i was you know when i was a kid part of the appeal to me for films uh you know that would go on to lead me to to the roads of russ meyer and radley is that you know, these were film worlds where women were not just a girlfriend or a mother or a whore. You know, it's like, because mainstream cinema, women are so boxed in. I always thought it was funny that so many people attack cult cinema, you know, with like, oh, it's sexist. Like, Russ Meyer is sexist. Or even, I've even seen people online go after Radley's stuff, which is a mystery to me. But even with Russ, I'm like, no, these are women who they're the strong ones they're going after what they want they're assertive they're sexual they they're not sexual for a man they're sexual for themselves exactly and, and i think that's you know, the that's the defining thing that separates it and i think in a lot of these filmmakers russ meyer and radley metzger but then across the board you have i keep saying franco but roland as well uh, Jose Larraz, oh, yes. a lot of these filmmakers, they kind of, in their celebration of female sexuality, it was about female pleasure, which is something, you know, mm -hmm. that the, the male gaze, this quote-unquote male gaze that was so horrible, you know, 
in in a lot of these films all that got criticized i haven't got a problem with it but you know this hollow kind of thing that you saw in a lot of porn which focused more on male desire mm-hmm. but with filmmakers like Ravi, you didn't see that you saw female liberation female sexual desire and i don't know maybe that was his gaze maybe that was what turned him on but for whatever reason that's what he captured which is why you do find a lot yeah. of women kind of like uh, tinto brass was very similar as well with some of his later films very female dominated films you know about not punishing women for having and enjoying sex, sort of celebrating that and allowing them to be heroines. Uh, not that that applies to Licorice Cortex. It's got a very bizarre <laughs> ending, but, you know, there's this there's this theme of liberation that you then find as you go through his later films as they get more graphic. Uh, and he uses that in a more graphic yeah. way. Yeah. Rant over. Absolutely, and, you know... <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, um, the other thing I love about Lucas Quartet, there's also to me, there's sort of almost an honesty about like the human condition and just like you know, not only just but sometimes you can't always rely on your own memory and how you know, you know, it, there's a reveal in the film where it's almost like a you know one of the characters. Again, I won't spoil this. There's something she mentions like, you know, oh, this happened. And then later on, you realized, you know, it was a lie. But you get this feeling it's not a lie because she's trying to lie maliciously. It's almost like, you know, you live in a certain illusion for enough time. It becomes real to you. And a lot of families do that. A lot of people do that. I love how he does that, talking of the gaze, how he manipulates the gaze. So Mm -hmm. he allows you to see things happening through... And you and frames them through things that characters say or what you think is happening, and then he completely he like changes it round and he messes with your perception and messes with their perception, and it go is so non which I can imagine some people will find confusing, but I just I love that kind of thing in a film anyway. So if it has a purpose, obviously. And it works. And there's this I think he's oh. making some statement there as well about what you see and what you believe and how our memories or thoughts can collide perception on things. It's it's a clever little film, I think. Considering, you know, it, he was written off so as an artful erotic filmmaker, like that's all there was to him. You know. Uh well and I I know that yeah, Roger Ebert apparently gave it a, a poor review. Ugh, and just, just do we have to bring the Ebert listen, into I, the first episode? I know, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I can't totally hate on Ebert because he did write with Russ. He and did. So he but did, he, but then know, some I, of his... Oh, which is so weird. Some of it, Sometimes he'd love know, things I that I'd love. And other times he'd just be so bloody sneering. And uh, I interviewed when my first assignment for Diabolique magazine actually was to interview, I think it was the writer and a, the couple, the second unit director and the producer for, uh, oh God, Silent Night, Deadly Night. And they were talking about all the whole oh, wow. Roger Ebert uh, thing and how he, they'd been called mm. blood money. And uh, Siskel and Ebert had called it blood money, like Santa's reward. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they killed him. They took it way too seriously. <laughs> and Michael Hickey, the screenwriter, when I asked what he thought about that, he said, well, I think they forgot when I write the script that I didn't write it for middle-aged, middle-class elitists. <laughs> 
which I thought was just the best That's perfect. Stuff. I don't think anyone's ever, in all the interviews I've done, ever given me an answer that great since then. So, yeah. <laughs> So he could be really oh, kind of, you know, he loved Russ Meyer, though, and championed his work. So, so, so he wasn't so Ebert kind was to other other similar film or filmmakers that we've made connections to. It was weird that he wasn't so kind to them. But with Meyer, because he wrote to Meyer, didn't he? Didn't he review his films? And then he wrote a letter to him saying how he loved his films and... Then he ended up writing the well, script. Well, I think like when he worked with Russ multiple. Yeah, and they yeah. become really good friends. I mean, but he, I think he started off as a fan and he was championing his work. So it's really bizarre that then later, not that much later on, actually, because when did Beyond the Valley of the Dolls come out? Uh, 1970, Yeah, which I was believe. the same year as this. Perhaps he was trying to, like, yeah. tramp down the competition. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what it was. Oh, uh, that's actually. Maybe he was slightly kind of just like trying that. to make his film the best rated film. <laughs> <laughs> Which they're so they're like apples and kumquats. There is no, I mean, there's there's nudity and sex, but they are two. <laughs> they're two films I love equally in some ways, but very different. And but uh, but I think the thing with like guys like Metzger. Um, is that I think when you're like a when you're a filmmaker that works with erotic elements, sometimes you can't win because if you try to do something different, you're going to have people say, "Oh, he's being pretentious" or "She's being pretentious," and then other people will be like, "Oh, this is weird. I don't get it. I just want the sex." And <laughs> I, you know, but I think that's always why I've been kind of attracted to filmmakers who took chances where, you know, what? Fuck it. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to make this film that I want, and the right people will get it, and it's going to. You know, some people aren't going to get it, and that's okay. You know, not not everything's for everybody. And so concludes our conversation for today. We hope you've enjoyed the very first episode of House Bows. Tune in to next month's episode where we conclude our conversation on Radley Metzger's career and turn down the lights and visit some of his steamier stuff as we look at some of his hardcore films. We hope you've enjoyed the episode as much as we have making it, so get on Twitter or Facebook and let us know what you think. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 